Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, it's a pleasure to, to have uh, with us uh, today uh, four uh, very distinguished uh, members and uh, leaders of the containership industry. Uh, from uh, my left, uh, uh, we have uh, Howard Finkel uh, from uh, Costco, uh, and uh, uh, probably the best person to talk to us about uh, the new regulations, the, the new tariffs, uh, and uh, how uh, uh, the trade uh, around the world is developing uh, right now. We have uh, George Yurukos, uh, the founder and principal of... Uh, uh, Technomar and uh, Poseidon uh, container ships. Uh, we have Aristides Pitas uh, from uh, the CEO and chairman of uh, Eurosys. And uh, we have uh, Peter Scherf, uh, one of the, the head of uh, AMA, one of the heads of AMA, one of, one of them, yeah. and uh, a member of the board of uh, uh, the, the largest independent. Uh, uh, container ship uh, charter owner of CISPAN. So, this is a, a very uh, interesting times for, for the container ship industry. On the one hand, uh, stock prices and uh, uh, charter rates are still at uh, historically low levels. On the other hand, there is an improvement. Uh, market is uh, much better than it was a year or a year and a half ago. So. It seems that uh, we are in the first innings of a, a very strong recovery. On the other hand, there are some uh, question marks uh, that in uh, some clouds uh, around the global trade, uh, the latest uh, uh, tariffs uh, of, uh, from uh, the US on uh, steel and aluminum, uh, they have uh, started raising questions about uh, potential trade war, about uh, potential retaliation of uh, uh, trade partners uh, that uh, they can have an impact uh, on uh, the trade and particularly for container ships. Uh, Howard, would you like to comment that? Uh, what do you think uh, can be the, the implications of these tariffs and uh, how severe this concern uh, may become? Uh, you know, it's difficult to say right now because this, this has just been a recent announcement. Um, but we've been dealing with kind of trade issues like this, um, truthfully, from the United States to China, which is our biggest market. We're a global carrier. But uh, that, of course, is our biggest market, and that is one of the biggest container, the, the biggest container market. Um, we've had issues now with, uh, like, waste paper. Waste paper is the number one uh, export from the United States. If some of these uh, tariffs and fines go through, um, will there be retaliation? Yes, it's, it's very possible there will be retaliation. Um, and it's going to hurt. I think it will hurt exports at a time when uh, we need it. But I have a feeling last minute, I think this is uh, a bit of a showman uh, move by the president. I have a feeling you're going to see things back down. I don't, I don't think it's going to get that serious because I don't think he wants to ruin trade with our biggest trading partners. 
Would you also like to comment about what happened last year? Everybody was very surprised to see demand growing by 6%. Mm -hmm. That was beyond uh, our uh, most optimistic expectations. Mm -hmm. What drive this uh, very strong uh, growth? How much of this growth was uh, actual uh, strengthening of the global economy? And how much was uh, uh, restocking uh, very low uh, commercial inventories? And what is the sustainable growth rate that uh, Costco is uh, projecting? Yeah, I, it was kind of a mixture of both. I mean, the, the economy did grow, world economy did grow. There were people were holding back because uh, 2016 was a pretty weak year. Uh, people were very hesitant in, in oversupplying. So it was a mixture of both. We see, I just came back from something called the TPM. Uh, every year, uh, the General Commerce holds a big convention called the Trans-Pacific Maritime Conference. I just got back last week, um, and all the economists predict approximately between 4 and 5% growth next year. We, uh, we'd like to be optimistic and say maybe 4%. And uh, do you think that this uh, 4% long-term growth rate is uh, something that is shared by other liner uh, companies? Uh? I, think, I think so. I said the, uh, there were, the, the conference was attended by probably every, it was, was attended by every major line and most economists who were dealing with the maritime sector, the container sector, and everybody was fairly, fairly much in agreement. Uh, George, would you like to comment about, uh, I, I was discussing with you earlier and uh, it seems that I'm going to find a very optimistic uh, panelist uh, here. Can you explain to us what is going on with the trade right now, what is going on with the demand uh, uh, for container ships and if there are any concerns uh, because of these uh, trade frictions? Well, on the, on the trade frictions, I'm not worried that uh, this trade war will hurt containers unless it escalates to a nuclear war. Mm -hmm. I mean, what container ships carry, it's ready-made products. So far, it's just the warning shots, you know, the steel, aluminum, you know, this is easy to put a tariff on. But the moment you start, you know, talking about putting tariffs on uh, consumer products, that's when you take out your nukes, and that's when you really are making this uh, a disaster. So if it gets to the point that it will hurt containers, that was the, the, that's going to be, I think, the least of our worries. It's going to be a horrible situation for the world economy. But uh, the EU was talking about uh, putting tariffs on uh, Harley-Davidson, on uh, Bourbon. Although I'm a... I'm a biker, and I would, I would hurt, you know, that would hurt me a lot as I've ordered a new Harley recently. Uh, I, I don't think it's going to make a dent to the U.S. economy selling less Harleys or, you know, more expensive Harleys. I, I genuinely think this is all for the show, like Howard said. Uh, I, I believe it's a tactic of uh, negotiation, and uh, obviously Mr. Trump, being a successful businessman, he knows how to, you know, run a tough negotiation. I just hope that he doesn't, you know, make it too tough. Sometimes these things can get out of control. Now, on the demand, I would very much uh, listen to what the liner company says. 
and uh, the economist. I'm not an economist, I'm just an engineer, so I don't really, cannot comment on the demand. What, what I can comment, though, is that what we saw in 2016 was a clear indication that the demand was strong even in 2016. As in 2016, we had uh, five or six you know, uh, mergers, which in fact was as if there was an internal excess of tonnage, like new, new ships were brought into the market. That was because when two companies merged, they need less ships than before. And still, during the 2016, the charter rates did not nosedive. They were at low levels, they were above OPEX, but they were steady, you know, steadily about $1,000 to $3,000, depending on the size of ship, above OPEX, which to me gives only one explanation. You know, when you have an excess of ships, ships are coming into the market, then you had, you know, one bankruptcy and one near bankruptcy, you know, the two Koreans, and still the market did not nosedive. It only means that there was demand to, you know, take over, and actually the numbers, however, the thing there for 2016 were very strong on demand. So even 2016, had a lot of demand. Therefore, the demand of 2017 was not really restocking. I think it was a genuine demand because also you had a very strong demand in 16 as well. So if it was a low demand on 16, then 17 would be, you know, really restocking the low inventories. But when you had a strong demand in 16, a strong demand 17, I think it makes sense the economy is at its, you know, prime now and moving along. And therefore, I can only see uh, you know, a couple of good years uh, or three years at least, which is the visibility of, of uh, economists going forward. And then we have a very reasonable supply, uh, which is key. Uh, can you uh, tell us what is going on right now with charter rates? And uh, because, uh, yes, the, the demand is good for, uh, for liners. You talked about uh, uh, the merger of the, the liners. And, uh, most of the, the benefit we have seen so far, at least in uh, 2017, went to the liners. Yeah. Uh, we haven't seen much of the benefit uh, to your companies, although indeed rates, uh, charter rates are better. How do you see this uh, developing this year? Yeah, well, after <coughs> what we saw was uh, the charters knowing a lot better than the owners, the market, clearly, as they, as they see the cargoes before we do, uh, they all came into the market uh, late uh, November, December, January, which is not the normal time for liner companies to fix ships. And they were trying to fix as many ships as they could, as long as they could, which was a clear indicator that they expected come uh, past uh, Chinese New Year, uh, they, were, they were seeing lots of business for them and profitability. And we saw that all the liner companies now are very profitable moving on to, you know, getting back to the good old days. So I think that uh, the market, as we see it on a weekly basis, is going to improve, and that's, 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 that's the case the last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, you know, the, the 8,000 ships, 8,000 TU ships gone up by $5,000 in a couple of weeks. The six and a halfs have gone up by, uh, I think, 2,000 and a half, 2,500, 3,000. Uh, five and a half is the same, so that's in a two-week span. So I think going forward, the market is going to increase uh, materially uh, for the next couple of months at least, and then it's going to level off a little bit and then keep going further. That's my humble opinion. Uh, uh, Aristides, uh, you, your company has, uh, is involved both in dry bulk and uh, container ships. Uh, you transport uh, both bauxite and uh, I don't know if you transport any aluminium uh, 
-hmm. but uh, also Bourbon and uh, do you trust for any Harley Davidsons or have you seen any impact of the latest announcements and uh, how do you view the demand for your ships? Well, b before I go into, into how I see the demand uh, uh, going forward, uh, and since you asked about my company, yes, Eurosys has been a publicly listed company since 2007, uh, and uh, we've been a, pure, uh, a company which has been doing containers and dry bulks. And uh, this worked initially, but uh, subsequently when the markets uh, and the investors got to know the businesses a little bit better, they decided that they can choose themselves if they prefer dry bulk or container or tanker or whatever, and they started investing in the more pure play companies. So even though we're a relatively small company, we have taken the decision to separate our dry bulk and our container business, and we will be separating into two listed entities uh, within Q2. So this is a, a move that we're doing because investors like pure play companies. It's also the right time to be doing it as both markets seem to be recovering. This, it's been extensively talked about the dry bulk recovery and we've seen it and we've seen the huge recovery that we've had. But uh, this is coming also on the container sector and it's coming a year later than the dry bulk market. So. The container market is recovering at, and it's currently at the stage where dry bulk was at the beginning of last year. So we think there's still a lot of room to go. The gentlemen here both expressed their optimism uh, in, in charter rates and, and in demand for container trading. Uh, and I think the most you know, important parameter that one can look at to confirm this thing, apart from the rising charter rates that we are already seeing, is the idle fleet. The idle fleet currently on the container sector, which has been a significant number the last few years, is at the lowest level it's been for the last five years. Uh, a very small percentage, less than two percentage of the world fleet. So this shows that there is the elasticity that existed there to keep low rates uh, is vanished. And uh, with rising demand, we should see uh, immediate uh, increases in charter rates and as George said we are already seeing it uh, and especially since last year charter rates have uh, doubled in many in in many sectors but there's still a lot of room to go Eurosys uh, was profitable during the last quarter of Q4 the first quarter after eight years of losses that we showed the profit and this is a tendency that happened both of the, because of the dry bulk and the container improvements. And this is something that we expect uh, to continue in the next few years. So, uh, Peter, if you would uh, like to comment also on the topic of the day, the, the tariffs and uh, the trade frictions, and also if you can tell us about, uh, George mentioned about uh, the consolidation in the liner industry, and you are the, li the, the largest charter owner, uh, independent charter owner. How does this impact your negotiations with your uh, customers now that there are fewer customers, they are becoming bigger, and uh, the container uh, charter owner side is still very fragmented. Is there a trend uh, towards more consolidation? Is there a way that, uh, is there a shift of power even more towards the uh, liners? Look, I, I think as, as we've gone forward, we've seen this tremendous sort of move of consolidation, you know, the latest being the Japanese, um, the one system. Um, 
ultimately it means there are less charterers. And as George says, more ships are displaced. Um, our fleet, our 10,000 TEUs, which are the saver class, which are very economic, have actually done very well, more than doubled in charter aid. After Hanjin, we actually fixed them for a dollar um, <laughs> because that's all we could get. Um, and now they're sort of getting up back in the sort of, you know, $30,000 a day range for the new buildings. Um, so rates have certainly sort of, you know, consolidated. And I think the focus has become on quality tonnage, on a shift probably with these bigger liner companies to the sort of what we've seen is sort of maybe eight and a half, ten thousand and up to sort of <coughs> fourteen thousand, which is an area where we've happily been. Um, but you're seeing more and more new buildings in the twenty-two thousands being announced, and that will probably end up sort of displacing and bringing tonnage down. And the dreaded sort of phrase that I think every sort of operator from George right across is the cascade effect. None of us really know how that's going to play out. The 4,000s came very low, and now they've bounced back up. Um, at AMA, we own like these good gentlemen feeder ships, and we've seen our rates go from 8,000 a day this time last year up to sort of 13,000 a day on the charter rates. So it, it is a very fragmented market. Ultimately, consolidation is harder on, on a line of come on, on an operator because there are just less less end users. Um, so I think one has to sort of, and C-SPAN has said, and the new CEO uh, in his last announcement was, yes, we're looking to sort of expand and sort of expand our reach, maybe different size ships, because of this very reason. Can, can you explain to us, uh, in this new environment where you have uh, less customers, uh, we used to have the traditional model where a charter owner will buy a new building and uh, charter it uh, to Costco for uh, 10 years, lever it up at uh, 75 or 80 percent, and make a good return. And then uh, we'll have to worry for the next 10 years. How does this, you know, rates have gone up from, I remember uh, the one that the uh, charter that you did was nine, ten thousand dollars you said one thousand dollars right after. No, I said one dollar. One dollar. After Hanjin, we did one for one dollar. And, <laughs> and thirty thousand dollars is still, is a much better, it covers your debt, you make some money on your uh, equity, but it still does not cover fully your cost of capital if your cost of capital is 10%. Uh, Ours is not 10%. But, uh, it might, but <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, asking, I'm not asking about CISPAN, I'm asking overall for the... No, I, I, look, I think generally when you have this sort of the new Evergreen deal, which was supposedly done by Japanese money at sort of, what, 4 or 5%, I think, something like that. I mean, it's, it's a challenge for anyone to start competing with that and sort of making money on those levels. So I think as, a, as an operator, you have to look beyond the, that the traditional C-SPAN model of sort of new buildings with 10-year charters because those returns are just difficult to get. But there is really anywhere between sort of 1,500, maybe even bigger, but 1,500 to sort of 13,000 TU ship, there is an active and a growing secondary market as more and more of these ships are sort of coming off charter. Um, so cost of capital as an operator is obviously important. Quality of operator is important. And then it's, you know, the relationship with, with your clients. So, we have a lot of ships with Costco um, on charter. Anything from 2,500 or our smallest up to about 13,000. So I think a lot of it is, is relationship driven. I, I, I know George and Aristides have the same thing where you're driven heavily by the relationships and the quality of your operation, right? Exactly. So, so, so that was interesting what you said and uh, pretty much repeating what uh, the CEO of CISPAN mentioned in the call that 
it's time to, to move also to smaller vessels rather than only well, new well, it's, buildings. Well, it's time to broaden the horizons, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it may not be smaller vessels. It may be large, large vessels, but it may be secondary. The ability... Step back. I mean, if you look at the new building order book, I think there are, you know, what is it, about a 5% order book, but about most of it is focused on the larger ships. The problem with the larger ships is how do you assess residual value? Um, it's a much larger capital component for a 22,000 TEU ship. You've got limited ways of sort of assessing that residual value and competing with Japanese money at 4 or 5%. So you have to broaden your horizons. Maybe you look at more sort of saver classes, sort of 10,000 TEUs. Maybe it's the eights and the nines. I don't think it's the 500 TEU feeder ship in the North Sea, but, but I think you have to have a broader horizon to grow, to grow your business. I think these two gentlemen... Uh, uh, yeah, if Aristides and George, if you can comment on that. Is there a liquid market uh, out there? And up to what level there is a liquid market? Uh, because if you are moving away from uh, or the model or we have to expand to the model of uh, trading in the short-term market instead of having long-term contracts only, up at what type of vessels uh, we should focus uh, on? Yes, I mean... But obviously, container trading is, is quite, uh, it's actually two different businesses. The very large ships uh, where you need to have the contract in order to be able to pay for a huge investment for the big ship, and there you have the contracts. And then there are the smaller ships, the feeder ships, that uh, are more like the bulk market. There's a lot of charterers, at least much more charterers, uh, much more owners of these ships. So it's more like a perfect market. There you can play the, the game that uh, the Greeks have historically been good at playing, which is you know buying at the right time, operating well whilst you have having great uh, relationships with charterers, so making the best out of the ship, but playing the market and selling at the right time. So. Uh, that's where the huge profits have been made in Greek shipping. It has not been made by having uh, one ship that you bought, uh, you know, for 15 years, uh, got a charter for 10 years uh, from somebody, and where you expect to make 7, 8, 9, 10%. And this has, has uh, as Peter said, become even more difficult these days with the Japanese competing in these big ships. But the smaller size ships, they have always been uh, the traditional, you know, as close as possible to the perfect market. So there is a lot of ships in the smaller sizes that are trade, uh, trading, uh, being bought and sold, uh, and there, there is a re quite a good market. And prices are low, so that's why we think this is the area where we should be, and that's why I see that, uh, you know, C-SPAN is now considering to enter into that space. That was not the model, but they are thinking of changing it and getting into that space because assets are still relatively cheap. Charter rates have room to go higher, and this can happen. Historically, it has been, you know, when we entered in, in the markets, we entered into the smaller feeder vessels between 1,500 and 3,000 EU. These days, uh, ships, you know, between 3,000 and 9,000 EU, even 11,000 EU, are been seen as trading in the charter markets. So there is a market developing there, and there is a space which is interesting because it can offer even higher uh, upside uh, in the future. Uh, George, would you like to comment? Are there ships and up at 
what size, what type of vessels yeah. are available for trading and gonna, in the spot market? Well, I was going to ask, yeah. George, I was going to be a question and ask George and Aristides. It's what I call, what, what, what is a Greek max? A Greek max is the largest ship a Greek would buy without Nine. a charter attached. Nine. <laughs> so <laughs> so Nine. I, I'm, I'm Nine. curious Nine. to... You know, it's spin on your it's question, very, I'm sorry. Yeah, I think George is more upper because he seems to be more agnostic on the uh, size. <laughs> so what, what's a Greek match, George? <laughs> uh, well, at least from our side, we ordered on speculation nines, and other Greeks have ordered on speculation nines. Um, Ocean Bulk uh, Capital, from my memory, they ordered nines. And they all but they turned had those out. Nines had Costco charters, didn't they? No, no. N none of them had charters when they were ordered. Okay. They're all speculative. And I mean, if you really want to make money, I don't. First of all, let me place myself. I, I don't believe into the selling leaseback model anymore for the reasons you explained. The moment there is a Chinese leasing out their money and Japanese leasing money, it's impossible to compete. Therefore, I believe, and I, I remember. Um, Fotis, back in 2015 when we did the roadshow, I was preaching that the selling leaseback model is over for containers and we should focus on looking at containers like any other ship, you know, spot rates, you know, shorter period of charters when the market is low, longer period of charters when the market is high. Uh, it turns out that this is the case really now, given the fact that there is availability of cheap uh, leasing money, I don't think ever any of the, our companies are going to be offered, you know, for 10-year charters at profit-making uh, uh, margins. So we're looking at traditionally now container shipping as uh, we look at traditionally in dry bulk or tanker or whatever, where you buy a ship at the right time or you build a ship at the right time and you fix it. So the, the maximum size that has been ordered on speculation, like from the companies I mentioned, ourselves, uh, Capital, uh, Ocean Bulk, and Mr. Embiricos, I just remembered, four of us, was 9,000. And uh, all of us, I, I'm sure, and from what I know, we made a very good return and it was very successful transactions, ordering these ships on speculation and chartering them later on. Now that's on to the max. Uh, one thing that is important in deciding what ship you want to invest in, I mean, I totally agree with the feeder model, yes, feeder ships are necessary and they're good and they're, you know, easy to charter and they're, they're not being built and so on and so forth. Now, one thing we have to remember that uh, liner companies uh, care about, and Howard will, uh, will say I'm right, it's slot cost. That's everything. That's where the liner companies focus, slot cost. Whenever they decide which, which ship to use in a specific trade, they're always looking at the slot cost, which uh, in simple words is the cost of each space on the ship for the liner company. Now that slot cost is a simple calculation. It's the, it's the division between uh, you add the charter rate and the fuel cost and you divide that with the homogeneous 14 ton uh, capacity of the ship. 14 ton homogeneous capacity for the audience is how many, in theory, for containers the ship can load that each container has a load of 14 tons. This is just a theoretical loading condition so that you can compare ship, one ship with the other. Uh, that really is, that number is increasing um, exponentially with the width of the ship. When the ship is becoming wider, 
that number is going up not linearly but exponentially. So it goes up, you know, three, four times up. Therefore, the wider the ship, the more, uh, the cheaper, let's say, the slot cost is, right? Yes. Therefore, in this respect, I am a very big advocate of post-Panamax beam ships. You know, that's what I like a lot. Um, because that is, uh, liner companies going forward, they always try to put as big of a ship as possible in every trade. This is George, the, can you clarify what is a post-Panamax? Uh, post-Panamax, all right, post-Panamax, yeah, that's one? an older expression. Post-Panamax is a ship that used, that used not to go through the Panama, but can go through the Panama today. Any, any ship that is po it's larger than the, the, the size of the width of it, it's more than 33 meters more likely 37 and above uh, today. When was the, la the, the first vessel, uh, after what age the, the industry started building this type of vessels and what size of NT you, just to make it clear to the audience? Yeah, they, they started building these ships in the, I would say, nine, uh, 1990, 1992, I think, right? And uh, those ships were, at that time, were the main ships, like the 20,000 AU ship, Today, though in these days, those were the main ships, you know, the, the, the bigger ships available. And I mean, just as an, as an example, in 2003, uh, there was one ship from OCL, which was an 8,000 AU ship that won the Guinness uh, record for the largest ship available, existing. That was in 2003. So imagine from 2003 where we are today, so fast. So these are the ships that, uh, you know, they're between five and a half thousand AU, uh, probably all the way, I would say, to nine, including the new design nines. Uh, one big uh, clarification is there's the new design, the old design, what I keep talking about, it's the new design ships are even wider than the old post-Panamax, so the, the old wide beam ships have become even wider once the new Panama Canal has uh, been opened so they can go through. And those new design ships have even bigger stability and they have smaller engines, giving a, a much lower slot cost than the traditional post-Panamax ships. So I believe that, uh, you know, first the liner companies get the bigger ships and those ships drive the market. And as it is today, these ships are driving the market up and then the market goes, uh, you know, goes up also on the smaller ships. It's always like that. First, the big ships go up. First, the ships, ships, big ships also go down. You know, it's always the case. The same, like any other type of ship, I think. Bulk is the same, tank is the same. Uh, Howard, would you like to, to, to comment on that? Is there a, uh, there are two tier, uh, there is a two tier market, large ships that they are owned by the liners, and why the liners uh, do not own smaller uh, ships, what they find more attractive in the large ships versus the smaller ships. There is a theory also, if you can uh, also add uh, to your uh, answer, that uh, as the, the trade becomes more regional because mm -hmm. of the new technologies, because of uh, 3D printing or uh, production moving closer to consumption with uh, uh, artificial intelligence, we are going to have a market that is going to need more smaller ships. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem that this is something that the liners uh, believe. Otherwise, I would assume they would buy smaller ships. What is the yeah. situation there? Uh, right now, uh, as George mentioned, it's, it's all slot cost. 
we're in a tremendously competitive environment still, even after all the consolidation. Um, the rates, I know we made money last year, but that was after years of uh, being in the red, and most, most carriers were in the same situation. So you're basically looking at, you know, trying to, uh, you're, you're not going to get the rates up where they need to be to grow your company. So you have to get your slot costs down as low as possible. I think, you know, I've been in the business a long time. I remember um, I started with Sealand and we had the SL7s and that was the ship of the future. That was 1,500 TEUs. And my personal feeling is sometimes um, some of the carriers there, sometimes ego gets in the way and you have to have the biggest ship and, and you're right, there's some markets that really don't require these vessels and also if you're not really utilizing, you're fully utilizing those slots, you don't realize the savings in a huge ship. Um, you know, we, we're not going to see probably the 22,000 TEU vessels in America for a while. Um, and there's still some ports in the U.S. that really are not able to handle. The dredging is not done for these huge ships. So there will be a market for, you know, smaller ships and, and, and feeder vessels um, and, and having hubs. Um, it's kind of a mix and match on, you know, how you're going to be successful. But in the major trades in, in, in the uh, Trans-Pacific and the Asia, Asia um, Europe trades, um, big ships are the way the carriers are going. Um, I don't see us building smaller vessels. I mean, we do have some 5,000s. That's considered a small vessel today. But uh, most of the new builds are going to be the over, you know, 18,000 to 22,000 TEU vessels. Can you comment, which regions do you expect that they will drive this 4% uh, uh, trade? Uh, and uh, do you have a view of which commodities are going to drive this 4% uh, trades? And uh, are there any changes in the mix of uh, trade? Um, you know, Trans-Pacific and uh, Asia Europe are going to still be the, the major trades. Uh, consumer products are going to be, you know, gonna, they're, they're always number one. Uh, and that's why it's mentioned when, <laughs> when you start uh, messing around with consumer products and your, the price of your TV goes up, then uh, a politician can get hurt when they, they put in tariffs, stuff like that. Um, there's going to be, there's going to be a huge change from what we see. I'm actually going to go to Houston next week. Um, and I've been going down to Houston for the last three years because synthetic resin is which one of our major exports is supposedly going to explode. Um, most of the, uh, the suppliers and the manufacturers of, uh, of this, this product uh, are gearing up for a huge, huge um, increase. Um, so you're going to see that. Uh, but as I said, I've been going down to Houston for three years. And even though the trade is strong, you don't see the, the explosion they're mentioning. And uh, I'm actually um, a little hesitant when I go down there. The, the, the shippers of uh, synthetic resin are all very, very concerned that the carriers will not have the amount of equipment needed. And they're right. 
Um, U.S. exports pay pennies on the dollar compared to imports. And what they're asking right now is they're asking to actually bring b bigger vessels into the Gulf area where that cargo originates from and bring more equipment in um, based on rates that nowhere near cover the voyage. So they're a asking for us to make major decisions on, uh, on commodities that are backhaul trade. They want us to make them the headhaul trade. So unless we start seeing rates come up on those commodities, we're not going to put bigger vessels in. We're not going to have this huge infusion of equipment come into the Gulf. Those, those are some of the issues that we're dealing with. Um, hopefully we can solve it. I don't think you can uh, build the import trade in that area to cover what they're saying is going to happen. So we have very limited time, and I want to ask uh, two questions, which I think are uh, very interesting. The first is that uh, to you, Howard, about Maersk's uh, announcement that they want to, to have a door-to-door -door concept, and uh, they want to, to become effectively the same as UBS and FedEx. Mm -hmm. How does this impact uh, the relevance of uh, the container ship market and uh, the charter owners? Uh, as far you know, Maersk has, has, has made a lot of announcements. A couple of years ago, they had <laughs> the daily Maersk, and this was going to change the whole industry. Um, within a year, that, that fell apart. Uh, look, Maersk, they're, they're very smart people. I've dealt with them for years as a competitor. They're, uh, they're very aggressive competitors. But I just don't think that's their core business. I don't see that changing the world. I think this is going to be a, another, my opinion, another daily Maersk, uh, where at the end of the day, it'll be something they try. I just don't think that's, that's going to be a huge success for them. And the last question, uh, sorry if I exceed a little bit of the time, is new uh, regulations, uh, emission uh, regulations, the low sulfur, how will the industry going to cope with uh, these uh, standards? What are the changes that this is going to bring? And if you can all comment on this last question. I'll, I'll, I'll comment quickly. You know, luckily, years ago, when fuel prices uh, really spiked, at the, at the point where it really became a problem, carriers were offering all-in rates without any kind of floating bunker mechanism. And it was one of the few times that the carriers got together. Like in America, we have antitrust immunity. Right now, actually, even though we still have antitrust immunity, all the discussion groups are basically dead. I'm, I'm actually shutting down the Trans-Pacific Trans Stabilization Agreement. So we're not talking about anything right now, any commercial matters. Um, but luckily, when fuel prices started to spike, one of the few things they did right, they never got rates right, was took the bunker out of uh, contracts and made it float. So um, I'm sure a lot of shippers this year, I'm the one who looks at all the, the contracts between the shippers. I'm, I'm sure they're going to try to put that, uh, have a, a fixed bunker in. And uh, I know I am not going to agree to that. And I don't think any other of the carriers are going to. So when with the new sulfur, with the new regulations, I'm not that concerned about it. It's going to drive up prices. However, there is mechanisms in the contracts to address that. So pretty much it's a pass through to the shipper. Uh, at the end of the day, but uh, 
you're not thinking of dealing with uh, this through scrubbers or uh, other forms of uh, fuels. What other forms of fuels can you put? Are you, uh, people are talking about LNG fuel container ships. Mm -hmm. Is there, are there any technological measures or slow steaming that... Uh, well, we're, we're already slow steaming. Um, slow steaming, people said, was going to become a thing of the past. I, don't, I just don't think that's going to happen. We're, we're actively using that. So I, I think we're going to continue. Um, there's a lot of uh, different technologies on, on different kind of ships, um, electric ships um, so far. Um, I don't know, in China sometimes we're the last ones to find out, uh, but I'm sure we're looking into it. George, would you like to comment? Yeah, I think this is the best thing that ever happened to us, for our industry. And that is for the liner companies and for the owners, for two different reasons. First of all, the liner companies, uh, they're gonna make, they make money when we make money, we're aligned in that. I mean, when there is less slots available, we all make money. Because the liner companies can eventually charge shippers what they should, because I think that uh, what the liner companies are paid, they're underpaid. I don't think they're getting paid enough for what they offer. That's my view. So I think that that is going to adjust the earnings of liner companies, going to improve them uh, substantially. And as for, the, for us, you know, the less ships available, the better. Now, why I say less ships? There are discussions right now in IMO for imposing speed limits on containers. Why containers? Uh, imagine, guys, you drive your car and you have a speed limit of uh, 50 miles. If you exceed the speed limit by 10 miles, 60 miles, the police stops you and they give you a fine of, I don't know, $50, $100, I'm not familiar. If you exceed your speed limit by 20 miles and you go 70 miles, then probably your, your fine goes from $100 to $200. If you go with 120 miles, they're not going to just keep giving you higher speed limits. They're going to put you in jail and take away your license and your car. So container ships have five times the size of an engine of any other type of ship with a similar dead weight. So let's say if we compare, you know, a 60,000 dead weight bulk carrier and 60,000 dead weight container, the engine of the container is five times bigger. Therefore, the engine of the container is going to pollute no matter what you do a lot more than the engine of a bulkier or a tanker. In this respect, the regulators now are looking very seriously in on imposing speed limits to containers from anything ranging from 10% to 15% of the speed. So you can imagine that what that means is a container ship, irrespective of paying the fine or using the low sulfur or whatever, might not be able to do the speed it used to, that is going to reduce very fast the existing fleet. It's less ships, less slot cost, less slots, a lot more profits for the liner companies, a lot more profits for the, for the ship owners. So this is really the best news I've ever heard. Now, uh, George, we have already exceeded the time. Okay. Uh, Aristides right. and uh, Peter, can you very quickly make a comment on that? Well, uh, the, it, it, for sure we're going to have uh, new ships built, burning probably other types of fuels already. This is under discussion. This is one of the reasons why, one of the many reasons why not too many ships are ordered, because nobody knows what will be the fuel of the future. 
What we know, though, is that by 2020, we have to eliminate the bad sulfur uh, content fuel. How can this happen <coughs> either by scrubbers or, for, or by, uh, by pressing the refineries to come out with the, cheap, with, with the fuel that is uh, satisfactory? And this is what's going to happen. There's no other way because uh, if, I mean, there's about 30,000 ships floating around more than 10, 15,000 deadweight, right? There is a capacity in this world to build less than 1,000 scrubbers. So there's no way that many ships will have uh, scrubbers. Only the bigger ships uh, who burn more fuel can afford and will afford to have the scrubbers. And this will offer probably an advantage for a small time, uh, a small time period till the refineries actually develop a fuel that is uh, environmentally efficient. This is what's going to happen. There's going to be a mess in between for a couple of years, and maybe people that uh, have scrubbers have an advantage. But there's a lot of uh, unknowns on the scrubber technology. What you clean the sulfur from the air and you dump it into the sea, regulations and things are changing there. So I think at the end of the day, fuel will be more expensive because it will be more expensive to produce and, and therefore somebody has to pay for that. Who will pay for that? All the ship owners will have the same type of vessels so the, the, it will be borne by the customers at the end of the day. But it's going Peter, to be a, a middle you, period in the mess. Peter, the would middle. you like yeah, to... No, are I, you going to install any scrubbers? I, I, I think uh, at C-SPAN we have a should we install scrubbers department um, well, not really, but I mean, it's... So I, I, I think to Aristides's point, it, it's, it's an open playing field. The one thing we are finding, is, and we have ships with, I think, an average of just over five years long-term charter remaining, that it is a cooperative venture with the liner companies. And, you know, do they want it? Because they're the ones paying for the additional fuel. So it, it's very much in discussion. As Aristides says, you know, there's a limit to the amount of scrubbers that can be put on in a given year. It's a process which I think at C-SPAN is, is ongoing. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you for uh, your answers.